hey everyone uh welcome to manufacturing hub uh there was actually so, so we, we had four great conversations that, that we're going to do a little bit of recap of uh mm-hmm. but as we got into it i realized that th- there was a, a, a point of conversation that we never have and i want to i want to start with that right so we, we talked to kyle we talked to kevin and joe and burned and basically our conversations was that itot convergence is some sort of foregone conclusion can we talk to the group of people who who maybe think no we have to air gap everything it and ot are two completely separate different groups and should never should never join yeah that's an interesting question right like and i think i've asked that question from burn right i i I still struggle with the fact that do we try and merge the two groups or do we try to have more of a delineation and a separation that would split tasks, you know, very rigidly, right? So if I'm on the OT side, this is the switch that I am responsible up to and I have no say or no knowledge of what's going on like upstream from that and then everything else is handled by IT. Obviously, there should be meetings that kind of you know, break up that project into two separate streams. But I, you know, like I don't have an answer if one approach is going to be better than the other. The companies I've worked with at least are trying to integrate the two teams. Uh, but as you know, like there was an interesting comment, and I think it was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, made by Kyle, where he said that he has not seen an active, how to say it, like willingness from at least the OT side to bring in IT and projects, right? Like it, there's still like a hesitancy to go with the integration. So maybe the approach would be to, like I said, completely separate the two, but I, I don't have that answer. What, what are your thoughts on that, Dave? I I think that that's a good point, but I guess to, to, to my comment, I, I'm more interested to talk to the point of, hey, what if we shouldn't or don't have... ITOT convergence. Should we, could we air gap everything, right? And to, to that point is why would we connect everything to, to the internet, right? Why would we connect anything to the internet? Can we just have air gapped boxes that live without patches, without updates, without all of that? And that way we keep the OT out of the IT side and we keep the IT out of, out of the OT side. I think we, we can certainly talk and we certainly should have a conversation of best practices, things that we found that are successful in order to help these groups go about converging. We should absolutely have that conversation. But before we get there, is ITOT convergence a foregone conclusion for everyone? Yeah, that's a good question. Do, do you have thoughts on that? Because I guess I have thoughts on that, and I want to make sure that, that we kind of play a bit of devil's advocate before we just plow into the conversations of everyone has to have ITOT convergence. Um, I, I guess my thought is, look, in my experience, there's a growing need of data, and that's because ultimately I've worked on many projects that involve data, and I don't think that it is possible to simply uh, air gap a facility for a number of reasons, right? And Maybe it's different in other verticals, but at least the larger factories in food and bath that I've been to, um, number one, you need to, like I said, maintain a flow of data from the factory into at the very least like an on-prem server, which you could argue could be air-gapped, right? 
but then you need to be able to maintain that infrastructure and a lot of time that involves uh, like service updates, it involves patches, same goes with your IT and OT sides. Um, so I think it would be difficult, at least in the infrastructures that I've seen, to have a complete air-gapped system for a couple of reasons. But I could see how it's possible, right, in some of the maybe like more remote locations and facilities that don't need to have updates, that don't have a consistent flow of data towards IT systems, so possibly. Interesting. I I have seen and worked with a number of groups who, who have tried to air gap or maybe historically were air gapped. And on my side, one of the, the best stories that I continue to hear is, you know, right, working with a facility that is attempted to be air gapped. And, you know, Friday night, Saturday night, uh, you know, you go walk by and somehow an operator has set up an entire PS4 and just dual home to a whole bunch of computers and other uh, switches to the internet so that they could go play Madden on Saturday night with their friends because they would much rather be playing uh, Madden, which is a video football game, Vlad, uh, as opposed to going and working the line. So I would say fr from my side that there are people that are either going through intentionally or unintentionally ITOT convergence there is a group of people who may try to keep the OT side off of the off of the internet, but it only takes one Ethernet cable dual homed into a couple of routers, again, either intentionally or, or unintentionally, uh, especially if the, the OT networks are are um, networked for you to, to no longer have the ability to say, hey, we're, we're an air-gapped facility. And then I would say beyond that, I, I know I have worked with a couple of different groups who are very specifically intentionally air-gapping their facilities. Uh, and that that is almost more work than it is to go about some sort of ITOT convergence. So I'm glad we were able to kind of to have a bit of that conversation as we go kick off because th there are a number of people and I've seen it in the comments and other things saying, hey, IT and OT are completely different. There should be no convergence. We should not allow IT onto the OT networks. We should not allow the OT networks onto the Internet. And that's an interesting perspective. Like I said, I would love to have somebody on the show come and talk to us maybe with that perspective. Um, again, maybe to your point of plugging in like a PS3, I'm not sure if that's an extreme example. I've not seen something like that in the field. I've certainly seen if, um, you know, something maybe simpler like USB ports are exposed and people would plug in their phones. Uh, yeah. But typically I've seen that, you know, industrialized at least switches or server rooms switches are going to be behind closed doors with a key and people wouldn't necessarily fiddle with... Uh, wired ethernet connections but i i well, could see I guess, how that is possible depending on the facility i i mean i don't think that most of them are malicious i think it's hey there's this ethernet cable maybe i found it maybe i went into a room in order to find it uh but i have learned that if i go plug this ethernet cable into this switch into this port into this hmi if it's got dual homes or a computer if it's got dual uh ethernet uh ports I can suddenly get on the internet and, and maybe going to, to play Madden is, is a bit of an extreme, 
Uh, have you ever seen an, an operator or someone manage to get through what should have been a locked HMI in order to go check their Facebook or something like that? Um, yeah, I've seen, you know, especially sort of like thin client implementations mm -hmm. uh, of HMIs that are running on, you know, like bare installations of Windows mm -hmm. would be accessed and then uh, people either play like games or access Facebook, like you said. But I, I think ultimately the responsibility falls on us. It's not that challenging, I think, to lock it down and not give them that access at the device level. Um, I understand certainly how air gapping would solve that problem altogether, but I think there's other ways or other means to segment your networks. Absolutely. So uh, fun funny story talking about locking things down. So, so I have a niece. She is 11. Uh, now, when she was three or four, her grandparents got her a couple of Kindles, uh, right? Because you can never just have one Kindle. The child needs to have multiple Kindles and um, or Amazon Fire uh, tablets and, and all of those things because they're, they're inexpensive. And, you know, have one, have one charging, go, go swap them out as need be. And at some point... They, they got a bill for like, right, like two or three hundred dollars. And they call Amazon and Amazon, and they're like, I don't know how this happened. You know, it's the child's thing. She doesn't have access to be able to go through to, to go make these purchases. And Amazon's like, Oh, is she like very young? And they're like, Yeah, she's, she's like four. And they're like, Oh, happens all the time. Despite our best efforts to lock parental controls, you, you just do so many like button smashing and swipes and all of these things. internet well, or if a bad doer wants to get in they will figure that out dave we lost you for a second there oh. but i think i did understand your story uh, look i mean again i don't think i have the perfect solution i think i've seen you know people certainly get uh, not necessarily penalized not necessarily fired but maybe reprimanded for accessing control systems in uh, in a way that was not intended so i think Maybe it's a people's problem as well that you're maybe seeing at some of those facilities. Like I said, I've not seen kind of extreme negligence that led to maybe catastrophic failure. Uh, but I've certainly seen a lot more problems due to, uh, let's say, poor connectivity or poor switch setup or, you know, people adding devices that uh, not necessarily from the kind of external side, but more control side setup that were a little bit, how to say it, it wasn't done properly. So it creates loops, for example, it shuts down a portion of your plant network. It creates issues with uh, safety circuitry that operates over Ethernet IP. So I've seen those problems a lot more than, you know, rogue connections from uh, maybe someone on the operation side. But in any case, I, I, I do want to maybe transition us a little bit into the conversations. I think we're going to touch on some of these points as we go through them. And so the first conversation we had was with Kyle McMillan from Siemens. I took down a couple of notes, maybe wanted to uh, start us off. Uh, I had a particular interest that was slightly outside of ITOT, uh, but it was deterministic protocols and why they are important in the industry, right? And why I asked that question from uh, from Kyle, who has worked on high-speed protocols, was because I have a lot of discussions with IT, and in the software space, at least from 
my experience, when they tell me it's going to be a real-time system, what they typically mean, it's going to be updating every, you know, highest end would be 30 seconds, but realistically, it's a couple of minutes, right? And for IT, that is usually, quote-unquote, real-time. What I've come to realize on the OT side is that you need high-speed communications, and I think this ties into the protocol challenges that we see and maybe this um, difference between, again, IT and OT, because some of the servo drive systems that need to process high-speed lines that I've worked at at least required very, very reliable signals at the two to five millisecond level, right? And so if you don't have those protocols and if you don't have them dialed in, it becomes impossible to run the process. And I think maybe that's one of the, at least, how to say it, not necessarily, I want to say like gaps of knowledge between the two industries and what is truly happening on the production floor versus what is needed on the IT side. And I'll take that example a little bit further before I let you comment, Dave. But I think what happens then is if I'm an engineer looking to troubleshoot one of those high-speed systems, I am looking for a very precise data feed, right, that allows me to trend what's happening inside of my, let's say, PLC controller or servo drive to understand where the failure occurred. And I cannot have an IT system that reads the data, for example, every 30 seconds, right, because I'm simply not going to get the resolution I want. And so I've been in conversations, again, where that was a uh, major point of discussion. And it can be solved in many ways, but I wanted to maybe get your take on that entire like data aspect, high-speed protocol aspect. Have you seen those applications and what your thoughts are on them? I, I have seen a, a couple of those applications, and it is one of my most favorite internet arguments to listen to people argue about what real-time is, Vlad, right? Because yes. real t- real-time to some people is, is two milliseconds. Uh, real-time to other people is two hours, not even joking, is two hours or maybe once a day we, we co- collect and correlate this data and we've got the data real-time because we, we have it all updated, you know, once a day. So I would say when we talk about real-time, we have to determine what real-time is, gets a little bit into our conversation in the, the previous segment as to as to you know understanding what what actually matters for a particular organization and what is high speed versus what is not high speed uh we talked a little bit about protocols in episode 100 and we were talking about i i actually don't think we we had the conversation about about report on exception right but but there are a bunch of different ways that you can go uh go look at what high speed is and what real time is and i think it, it really matters depending upon what you're doing within an organization. If you're doing something with a lot of pressure, if you're doing something with a lot of heat, if you're doing something at super high speeds, then th- then maybe you do need something that's, that's two milliseconds or five milliseconds or 50 milliseconds. At somewhere in there, you're going to have to realize that on the OT side of things, you're investing a lot of time and a lot of money setting up a very particular high-speed data collection, high-speed historian for that because most historians are not meant to go collect data every two to five or even 50 milliseconds. Um, at some point, you'll just overrun buffers and, and have, a, have a whole lot of problems 
uh, when it comes to that. So I think we absolutely have to determine what real time is and and what speeds that, that we actually need when we talk about those uh, when we talk about those particular applications. And yeah. I yeah. I find that a lot of the differences that I see in the OT side versus the IT side is just the potential lack of understanding the other group, right? And so if if you're IT and I'm OT and I say, hey, we need high speed or we need real time, and you're thinking, hey, we need something every two milliseconds or one millisecond because this is high speed, and I'm over here like, yeah, as long as we capture the, the data and report on exception once every, I don't know, minute or five minutes, then then that's fine. And so, again, th- there's a huge gap. And I find, especially when you're bringing disparate groups together, kind of defining what a bunch of these things are, as, as ridiculous as it may seem, because everyone is in theory a professional, everyone should know what real time is. Real time just means different things to different people. So if we go through the process right. of defining what real time is, it generally helps and alleviates many of those issues. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I think, again, it comes down to the conversation, as you said, but I don't think they happen as often as they probably should. And I will throw in maybe like a couple of more examples, you know, to that same conversation. So Mm -hmm. on the protocol side, I think it creates a very interesting dilemma, I guess, if I may use that word, because I think that IT at least currently operates in the realm of, again, Ethernet IP, and they know how to set up Mm -hmm. firewalls, they know how to manage switches, they know how to, you know, drive data between those devices. But Mm -hmm. in the automation side, and I think Kyle made this point as well in the conversation, there are so many protocols that allow you to segment or send that data. So I could have a, let's say if I have an Allen Bradley PLC, I can receive that data. I can then send it over device net or control net to a completely different controller, right? Like, so this is going to be an entirely separate network. And then that controller is going to have its own island network that operates, let's say an ethernet IP. And I think, how to say it, like converging that with IT, they just, there's a, again, a knowledge gap that is, how to say it, difficult to explain why it is done that way. And I think this comes back to that same point of high speed, but also deterministic protocols that that were created, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s in order to address the uh, I want to say the issues on Ethernet and that ha- are still around in factories today. Uh, the other point, you know, I, I think you made a, a really good point on the data side, which is you need to know what the application is and what the intent is. And at least in my conversations, there is a very big split between what engineering needs, right? So if I'm going to troubleshoot that system, I'm going to need that data at the millisecond level. If they create a system that is going to capture it every 30 seconds for that specific purpose that that's going to be useless for my uh for my let's say department but if i'm on the management side if i want to see what kind of failures we had over a week over maybe a a month or maybe a year then obviously it's good enough to capture the data every 30 uh seconds the caveat you know i would say is also understanding how long you need to store that data for right so the Again, the metrics on the OE and maybe the dollar values that we've lost can be stored for years, right? And there's not a lot of uh, importance to, how to say, like, there's not a lot of importance to capture them at the millisecond level. 
But if I'm capturing at the millisecond level for troubleshooting purposes, the chances of me going back and reviewing data from a month ago are slim to none, right? I'm not going to try and drill into the millisecond level of my servo drive on, you know, January 2nd to try and figure out today what happened at that time. So I think it's also, hey, maybe we can have a week-long buffer for that very high-speed, high-frequency data and a very long buffer for that uh, sort of like higher level metrics. But I think, again, at least in my world, those conversations or those explanations aren't always given. And so we ran into, you know, higher bills or uh, I guess a more robust on-prem server than is needed. We try to upscale, you know, the edge device that's going to funnel all that data. Mm -hmm. We're going to spend a lot of money on a database that is not necessarily, like I said, needed just mm -hmm. because we align one parameter, which is, let's say, me telling them I want something quick that can store a lot, but I don't need it for a long period of time. Anyways, I ramble on a little bit. I think we had a good conversation with Kyle about that. Uh, what are your thoughts? I was going to say, before we go talk about uh, Kevin's conversations, I'd like to say, Vlad, I think many of your previous career issues, and, and I'm sure they're, they're not your fault, uh, have come about because there is a lack of understanding of requirements going into a project. And uh, because we, uh, and I've seen this many times over and over again, if we don't write out requirements, if we don't have a document to be able to go uh, look back on in order to understand, hey, what are the requirements of this project and what do I need to do going forward, then we will almost always certainly fail to deliver uh, up to up to everyone's expectations, or even if we do deliver up to everyone's expectations, uh, it will be an extremely expensive problem. And and we've all certainly heard horror stories about cloud-based uh, software and solutions, especially startups, maybe people who didn't optimize their code um, or who didn't understand what billing procedures look like, and, and they suddenly get a fifty or two hundred thousand dollar bill for the month. Um, absolutely. And absolutely want to shout out to, to Rob. Uh, Rob saying that uh, IT lacks the understanding of deterministic nature of OT protocols networks. And I think the key point that he's got here is a late answer is always a wrong answer. Um, and I think regardless of, of what we do looking at moving forward, a late answer is absolutely always a, a wrong answer. And then Toby in here talking about uh, Cisco telling their IT folks that they need to collaborate with, with OT and on some of the issues that, that we may run into. And, and I feel like we've all run into those issues at some point in the future. Talking about some issues with IT. Uh, so next episode we had was, was Kevin Jones. And Kevin was, was a really interesting uh, conversation that, that we had to have with him. He was talking about some of the work that he does with digital transformation, maturity assessments. And one of his pain points uh, when they go do these is how IT is, is general. Well, no, not generally. IT is always invited to be part of the these conversations and the interviews and, and many times IT doesn't show up. Uh, and, and I would say that that is kind of a, a key takeaway and also a pain point to, to many organizations of IT not showing up. I think one of the really interesting conversations that, that we had with Kevin, uh, it, at least we started with Kevin, we had this with many people, what was basically kind of the, the best path forward, the most effective path forward for all groups is to be able to go in, kind of duke out what your IT, OT convergence or non-convergence 
is going to look like in the boardroom. And then you're, you're the, the, the head of operations, your head of your IT, be it the C-level people or other uh, executive director level people, that is the path that we are going to do moving forward as opposed to having two disparate and separate groups. And the separate groups are absolutely what uh, what hurt us if we are not one company focused on making cases or making production. Yeah, I thought it was a I thought it was an interesting conversation with Kevin as well, and he brought up some interesting points. Right, he also talked about the delays in executing some of those initiatives. Right, like when IT does show up, it typically takes a lot of uh, a lot of time and effort to build out some of these systems. And I think he talked about OT always pushing versus IT pushing back. Right, so mm-hmm. I think like that. Um, how to say like struggle needs to shift if we want to accelerate some of the initiatives that at the very least you know proof of concept initiatives right i think we talked about this last night a little bit between uh, you and i but um at the end of the day i think ot operates from a mindset of we need to try and push more cases out the door and they certainly have a lot of different ideas that they want to test out and in many instances those ideas die rather quickly because when they go to the IT side, it becomes a three-month-long implementation, which, again, I I made the comment that I realize now it may warrant that time, but I think that it's not always communicated as to why uh, those are the expectations. And so a lot of those initiatives, again, in my experience, die off because they're just going to take way too long. They're going to take uh, too much resources to implement. And um, yeah, I, I was wondering, I guess, like what your thoughts are on that side. Like, have you seen projects, um, you know, executed in, in that way? Like, what are your comments on maybe the delays uh, that Kevin had made in the episode? Yeah, so I, uh, I, I looking back, had one, I mean, I, I learned many things from this project. Uh, so I, I, we can talk about things Dave learned from the project after I, I kind of briefly describe the project. So um, I got I got a call uh, looking to help implement, I think like a very basic SCADA and maybe like OEE downtime tracking for a new line uh, for an organization. And this was probably five or six years ago. And we're like, absolutely, we can do that. So we're gonna do the development. Beyond the development, this is the server that we need spun up to run the software that you guys have purchased. Mm-hmm. And we had, I think weekly meetings and the, the person who was in charge of it, if memory serves was an internal person, but all of their it was contract it. And it took like four or five months to get a fairly inexpensive server spun up. Uh, And I don't remember if it was, if it was a virtual server in the cloud or if it was an on-prem server, but it took a number of months caused the project to overrun and uh, caused the project to delay by four or five months because we were just on Well, there were a couple of things we were unable to get and confirm. And that one on the IT side was we literally physically couldn't get the server spun up. And one on the OT side is we we couldn't get some, some tags confirmed because documentation that they had sent over was incorrect. And I'm sure you've never uh, lived through incorrect documentation uh, on any side of any project flood. So I would say that having gone through that i i mean i kind of learned a a couple of things right so so there are some 
uh, th there are some like caveats, addendums written into uh, written into contracts of th this is the timeline that we need to hit. If we don't hit this timeline, uh, we, we may run over. If we run over, it's going to be more expensive on your end. And I would also say kind of beyond that, I, I have done a couple of things, right? So I went into this with, with, a, with a third party group. Um, and historically, I, I did a lot of that work. I have found that I am much more particular in which groups will I go be under if, if I'm going to go do work, right? So if, if I know a group and I know that they're going to go push and do the things that they need to do because we're, we're one team and we all need this to be successful, absolutely. I am a bit more hesitant uh, based upon a number of experiences of just allowing someone else to drive all of the conversations uh, on my side. I need to be able to have a relationship to pick up a phone to the internal champion at the end user to say, hey, these are the things that we need. What's going on? What what can we do in order to succeed with that? And I, I find that that is very important. But, but I've certainly seen projects stalled on both the IT and the OT side. And one of the comments I think I made on the show with Kevin, one of the comments I will make now is I find that sometimes there are just clients who are not ready in order to, to go through some of these projects. And sometimes there are comments or sometimes there are clients who, while they say they're ready, but like internally, they've got people who are going to go work against you all of the time. So every time I go look at, you know, phase one and phase two and beyond of opportunities, I always want to go look at, hey, are these the right people in order to go through this project with? And if phase one doesn't go well, we always need to have a, a very honest and open conversation before we consider a phase two of projects. What about you, Vlad? Uh, well, I've certainly had interesting experiences, again, on, uh, on the on the project side and I can maybe speak to one that was particularly interesting and the the project was IT was funding a data solution right SCADA slash MES yep. that would ultimately migrate the responsibility slash ownership from them to the OT side right and this was a very interesting conversation because again they were how to say it blamed for so many failures on the current SCADA system that they simply wanted to pay to implement something different that would be handled by OT on on-prem servers uh, that would, like I said, be completely managed on the OT side and allow them not to have that blame. And so needless to say, it was uh, there was a lot of tension. Uh, the meetings were, how to say it, very not necessarily difficult to navigate. I was a consultant on this project on the OT side. And so I could certainly see how the OT departments held a bit more power. And I think that's a very, uh, a little bit less discussed dynamic, right? So depending on the organization, I think either OT or IT is going to sort of dictate how things are done. And depending on who dictates how things are done, it could balance the scale one way or another. And what I mean by that is, you know, going back to the to the to the those struggles, if OT holds most of the power, they will pretty much 
coerce IT into doing projects or being involved in projects. So I've seen more of those scenarios than the ones, you know, that Kevin mentioned where I, I, I mean, Kevin mentioned where IT doesn't always show up versus where IT holds the power and, you know, the opposite is kind of they're, they're imposing their own infrastructures on the OT department. So I think interesting. maybe to, to summarize, like my experience, OT has always been kind of the end customer of what IT mm-hmm. does. And they were able to sort of drive how IT infrastructures are implemented. But IT was ultimately responsible for those, uh, for their own deliverables and was, how to say it, in many instances, blamed for any and all failures, right? And again, that's just my experience and my industry. I could see how it's different uh, depending on where you are and maybe which stage of a company you are in. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's maybe the reality I've seen. The, The other component I wanted to discuss on Kevin's conversation I want I want to back up because I, I need yeah. to need to to dig into that a bit, Vlad. So yeah. I guess I am always a fan of spending money to fix problems. In that instance, you were talking about was IT able to spend a whole bunch of money and offload the responsibility of the, the SCADA MES onto someone on the OT side? So obviously, the project wasn't sold with uh, with that intent. Right. That okay. was maybe like a more of a closed door conversation that they mentioned that they're just, you know, tired of dealing with this. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, those corporate initiatives where they're restructuring or somebody new comes in uh, and they want to do things differently, but they also want to take advantage or they want to, I want to say, upgrade their system. Right. So the sale happens on the premise of we're going to make the data collection system better. We're going to be able to drive more improvements at our facility. But like I said, underneath the conversation is also, we want OT to be the owners and be responsible of what happens with this project. We want them to be the main driver and we want them to own uh, the end system. Interesting. Interesting. But they did. So IT, ultimately the IT quote unquote department wrote the check. I'm also a big fan of people writing checks, uh, but right. but you you said beyond that you had another uh, you had another comment you had another thought on uh, on what Kevin yeah. was saying. Yeah, so I wanted to discuss you know in, in practical terms. So we talked a bit on the ITOT stack when it comes to data applications, and I think you know to bring this uh, to the practical ground level for maybe some of the engineering. Uh, viewers slash listeners of uh, the manufacturing hub, I wanted to dig a little bit into the infrastructures that you're seeing and maybe I'll give a perspective first. So typically, you know, when I would work on a data application, we would have what's called a data collector or data aggregator. And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, in many instances, we talk about those being IPCs, so either Linux or Windows-based. What I've seen a lot of times used is an Alan Bradley like control logics, at least in Allen Bradley based plants, because I think they lend themselves very easily to connect over those various protocols. And then the goal of that collector, right? So when we discussed being able to pull that data at the millisecond level or at the uh, very like sort of lower frequency, uh, it's able to parse that data and ultimately send that into the database that's going to be not necessarily for your SCADA system, but at this point it's going to be an MES 
mm-hmm. and some sort of a historian. So again, I just want to paint a picture for everybody who's watching slash listening. So you have a data aggregator that's going to connect to multiple devices, lines, machines, collect and process that data, buffer it to some extent. Then it's mm-hmm. going to send it to, typically in my world, to an on-prem server. Um, obviously, now we're discussing a little more in the on the cloud side, but first it's going to be to an on-prem server, which in general resides on the IT side, right? And uh, in at least, again, my, my experience, it's going to be a Windows running server. I think Linux is also possible for, for databases, but I've seen a lot more Windows systems uh, just because of the compatibility of the the Rockwell tools, at the very least, uh, with Windows, and from there, that that point, that server can either run database historian. It can also run Ignition. I think we've discussed the, discussed that both with Kevin and Joseph. They gave us some examples of different softwares. It can run uh, a SCADA system or MES or any of the distributors, for that matter. And ultimately, we can then process if we want to send that data upstream. Uh, to the cloud and be able to leverage maybe some of the other applications, but we, mm-hmm. we can get into that discussion once we get to Joseph. But what are your thoughts? What are you seeing, you know, at the plant level? I want to offer, and let me let me premise that question maybe with, I want to give the right tools or the right information to the engineers, because I think the question that I see coming in for, uh, you know, not for those very large projects where we're going mm-hmm. to overhaul the MES, SCADA, ERP completely, but an engineer has come, uh, is going to ask me for, hey, we have like four boilers. My boss is asking me to collect some data uh, fairly basically, right? Like we're looking for a proof of concept, be able to display that, be able to trend that. I get some fairly basic metrics at the plant level. Okay. I, I, I guess Dave's hot take of the day, Vlad, is I, I honestly think you can do that with virtually any of the software solutions um, or technology stacks that you guys currently have or that you're looking at, right? So that that is a super basic application. You could go build that on Siemens on any of the WinCCs. You could go build that on any of the, the Rockwell platforms, especially if you've got tags and license and Rockwell Historian, which is just OSIsoft's Pi or Aviva's OSIsoft's Pi. I'm not sure how, how we've renamed that, right? If you've got tags... Would you build that directly on like the PLC or would you create like a separate segment that holds that like processing slash, you know, maybe some small database, maybe small like a UI... So I would, I'm going to, I'm going to take a step back. So if you mentioned data collector, data aggregator PLCs, you've got a bunch of beautiful PLCs controllers behind you that that could do all of that. Right. So any of the, the, any of the Siemens um, S7s, I've done it with Rockwell control and compact logics in the past. Those are honestly a bit expensive. You've got a couple of Opto 22s up there that I think are prime on the data aggregation side. You've got a PLC Next that is somewhere up there and like 12 by your feet that are prime on the data aggregation side um, or like edge device side for, for a couple of reasons. So I would say that, and, and I guess in the past, I have certainly used data aggregator PLCs. I have also just connected PLCs into the, the network 
right? Uh, I've, yeah, I've, I've connected PLCs into the network and we've just driven it to a SCADA or we've driven it to, I mean, we've driven it to a server that we drive it to, to a SCADA we dri- and then we can go historize and collect data off of that. So I would say that if you have a data aggregator PLC, you could potentially look at driving those solutions directly on it. Uh, there are a couple of PLCs behind you that have visualization tools, um, HMIs, other screens that you can build. If you're looking to do it on the cheap, you could do it on something like an Opto 22, because um, I believe all of those have uh, visualization um, screens we'll just call them screens. They've got visualization tools that that you can go leverage. I also believe that the PLC next has a visualization tool that you could go leverage. I think they've got some free cloud storage as well for some amount of tags. So you could potentially do it on that. And if you're looking to do a proof of concept, that may be a good way to do it. Typically when I do something like this, I am driving the information to a server ideally historizing it, especially for a lot of the applications that that we're talking about, and then querying the the data from wherever, whatever, excuse me, process historian I have. Uh, Many times I see lots of people putting it in SQL databases. There, of course, are awesome tools um, and process and time, I'm sorry, time series historians, uh, OSS off Pi, um, Canary Historian. I've seen people roll their own with, with InfluxDB and other things like that. That, that are good tools to use. I said a whole bunch of different softwares. Again, I think if you're looking to do it, do it as simply as you as you possibly can. Don't build a Rube Goldberg machine if you're just trying to, to go figure out how to do something as a proof of concept to begin with. Simple is always going to win. Yeah, I, I would generally agree with that. Let us all be very honest, folks. Vlad absolutely does not agree. Vlad is not a fan of simple. Vlad is like, if I could take something simple and add 45 more steps to add 45 more steps to over-engineer it, I'm absolutely going to over-engineer it. And again, if you are it looking how to- how fun that experience is. Well, ex- exactly. Like, like you're in it for the experience. I'm in it to, to try to help people go build one of these tools the first time. There are lots of ways, a bunch of different architectures that can be leveraged to do this. If you guys are looking to do beyond a proof of concept or beyond a kind of very simple one-off application, I absolutely suggest going and and architecting or having someone architect or talk to me about how you guys can go kind of build this system or Vlad and I about how you guys can go build this system so that it runs properly over the life and the, the thousands or tens of thousands of tags you're going to go ahead and and drop into it. But there are very simple ways that are relatively inexpensive to go run some things up to test. Uh, to, yeah, to be able to go run some things up to test. I would say beyond that, inductive automation's got a bunch of two-hour free trials. Uh, I've seen people kind of build systems on these two-hour free trials, uh, collect data, in a SQL database and go kind of prove that out before spending money on it as well. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a good approach. And I think you can uh, minimize even the hardware side uh, for that proof of concept too, if you want to run it on something different than what you already have. Um, quality of data, I put that as a question mark in the conversation with Kevin. He mentioned the need right so i think like when the struggles between it and o, uh, ot occur 
there's also maybe this misunderstanding of, or I guess like there's a lot of challenges in contextualizing the data and understanding where the data comes from and in what format that data comes in, right? Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about that, let's say that bridge between that collector PLC or that edge device, if you want to call it that, and what goes into the server, I think that OT has a lot more visibility on the on the edge device, and then IT kind of siphons out the data at the server level and potentially, you know, sends that to the cloud. But I'm wondering if you're if you're seeing challenges in understanding that data structure. If you're seeing people reinvent the wheel, I want to throw that in there as well. Are you seeing people <clears throat> rearchitect or create something uh, that uh, is out of the ordinary per se? Are, are you saying, am I seeing people build Rube Goldberg machines, uh, one that we could just you have name and tag standards and name them all the same thing and be able to instantly understand uh, what, what they are when we get to the process historian or the uh, the other server information? Well, I mean, do we have standards, right? Like, let, let's start with that question. Do we have uh, a standard on the OT side that dictates how the data is going to be packaged? Do we have... Well, I think those those are different questions, right? Do we as an industry have standards on many things? Yes. Do we have standards on how we name tags? No. Do we have standards upon how we build things like UDTs on Upward? Um, absolutely not. Best case scenario, an organization, before they start a build, be it Greenfield, Brownfield, or Machine, does someone go put together what historically I've called like system architecture guides in which we in minute and excruciating detail lay out everything? Uh, yes, th- th- that is what people really, you've do. Seen the- yeah, because I've built them because I've run into all of these problems in the past, Vlad. Um, yes. So um, I, I have not seen an industry standard on what those look like. In my mind, it's just a a series of what should be best practices. Um, And then if you go hold vendors responsible to this is what it needs to look like before I'm willing to accept the system, then you hold vendors responsible for this is what it looks like before I'm willing to accept the system. And we'll wait for you to, to get it right because you're not getting paid until you get it right sort of thing. Then... I have seen groups and organizations be successful. I think it's much more difficult, Interesting. right? Like Very it nice. is simple to accept whatever strange PLC, whatever strange hardware a machine builder wants to build on because this is what it is. I've seen a couple of groups willing to go through and rip out brand new PLCs because their standard is a compact or control logics and everything in their facility is going to be a compact or control logics because we've got one or two of each on the shelf. And if something are to go down, I literally have a PLC on the shelf that I can go flash the the, the PLC code because I have backups of my PLC code onto the PLC, throw it into the chassis and we can get back up and running. But I would say those groups are are far and few in between. More often than not, I see Vlad writing pump underscore, you know, back row underscore five. And I see Dave writing back row hyphen pump 
underscore five and then then there are slashes and backslashes and and all of these other things and rob uh the last time we had this conversation which might have been with kevin rob says that he writes in camel case and there are many different ways that if you have technicians and other people just going and delivering if yeah if you have technicians and other things just going and delivering whatever they want you're not going to have any idea what the structure of your system or what the tags mean. And if we aren't able to easily contextualize the tags, then we've got a months or years long series of issues in which, hey, we've got to go normalize all of this somewhere. So now we're talking about a middleware somewhere. And how do we normalize all of these tag names? How do we add context to these tag names? And then that's outside of even talking about, you know, the quality of the data, right? So, so quality of the data on my side also means hey, are we sure that there is a heartbeat or other thing and this sensor is good, right? So I've seen sensors go to zero degrees or go to 100 or go to something along those lines and it just doesn't get catch, it just does not get caught for months. I will say Rob in, in the uh, the comments is is throwing an ISA 95 is uh, is a good framework. And, and again, there are good frameworks. Uh, I just, I don't see very many groups leveraging these frameworks and certainly not leveraging them over the entirety of their facility and holding people accountable for that. Yeah, I would say that my experience has been similar, right? So I think on the hardware side, there's a tangible, how to say it, I want to say like loss in having, you know, multiple brands stored on the shelves, right? Because ultimately you're um, first of all, your space is valuable, but second of all, it becomes more difficult to replace something if there's, you know, like 10 different SKUs uh, where it could be one. So I've certainly seen a lot more standardization on the hardware side, but on the software, to be honest with you, even in some of the like Fortune 50 organizations, again, top mm-hmm. plants of the world, I've seen it to the point where, you know, as soon as somebody learns how to create a UDT, they are the most Mm -hmm. knowledgeable person on UDTs at that facility. And whatever UDT they write is whatever UDT that's going to be the the current approach to that, right? Like there is no standard. I've seen standards, you know, between a program scoped and controller scope tags. And in terms of names, I've seen, you know, camel case versus, you know, capital letter on each a word and typically there is a loosely defined guideline of um, you know if you want to use your standard defined let's say IO tag or if you want to create a tag that's going to be alias alias into that first one uh, but the, those requirements again in my experience have been very loosely followed and mm-hmm. as I said that's at top organizations when you sort of peel a couple of layers below that it was a complete free-for-all in my experience. I, I would like to, to draw a line between large organizations and top organizations. I've worked with a number of, of large fortune companies. Um, I think many of them just have enough volume uh, in, in order to continue to, to build and own as much shelf space and, and everything else, as opposed to they're actually the best of the best in uh, in manufacturing like many of the the top organizations are really good because they're so large as opposed to they're so large 
because they have the best manufacturing facilities. I, I find many of them, especially on, on the large side, they have a bunch of, of legacy equipment. And because they've got so much legacy equipment, they are unable to they're unable to move into the 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 industry 4.0, the digital transformation. See a lot of those groups struggle with it because of of where they are and and how much tech debt they have. There's a good question from uh, from Rob. Maybe do you want to take a stab at that? So he's asking, speaking of programming tax standardization when going into brownfield situations, do you see standardization or unified namespace on the edge being implemented? I, I think that it's, it's a good question. Um, I, I guess the easy answer is no, right? I see a lot of people talking about it. I, I see a lot of the, the concept thrown around. Do I personally see on the, the Brownfield side people going through the process to create that normalization level? Typically, no. And I think typically because it's a very expensive, very time-consuming, very painful process that people have to go through if they want to go through that normalization. Do I think it's important? Absolutely. At some point, you have to draw a line in the sand saying this is what our standard is and everything moving forward and everything we touch moving forward, we have to normalize to the standard. But for large facilities, that, that is a lot easier said than done. Um, and to, to give a, a non-OT example to this, uh, I a number of years ago uh, worked for a manufacturer's distributor's rep, a uh, great group of people. When I got there eight or 10 years ago, uh, they had just implemented the first ERP they ever had, right? So beautiful, bright, fresh clean installation of an ERP system. Historically, all of the names they would have were all stored in the localized Outlook database. And once a month or once a quarter, one of the owners would literally go travel around to the two or three offices, go stick a USB flash drive into the computer and take a backup. And that was literally the backup of all of the contacts for the entirety of the organization, right? All of the quotes, everything else were physical paper copies. So beautiful opportunity to to go start fresh. And so what happens when they go start fresh? For whatever reason, and and I, Dave, was not part of it when they did this, they dumped all of those Outlook contacts directly into the ERP. So suddenly we have, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 Outlook contacts. And wouldn't you know, something around... 90% 90% of those had issues on the on, on the, the flip over. So we, we had 5,000, uh, yeah, we had 5,000 call it contacts and it became someone's job when they weren't actively doing the other parts of their job to go through to try to normalize what those were, to try to go validate if the phone numbers and the emails were correct and to go purge out of the system hundreds or thousands of those contacts because they they were just quite literally useless. And that was a super, super difficult task for the, the person who had to go through the process and do that. And that was a completely fresh install. So now as I think about how do we go look at a facility with tens of thousands or more tags, 
with tens of thousands or more tanks, it becomes difficult to go through and look at that process of normalization. Um, again, I think, I think it's important that we go through that. I think it's just a, it is more of a issue of how do we find the time in, in order to go do this. And so we've got John Harrington in the comments. Hey, John, uh, John, We'll have to drop the episode link. John was on uh, at the end of last year, had an amazing conversation about all of this. And he says, uh, so John is 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 with Highbyte, one of the co-founders there. And he says, we see that you have to start with the high value use cases. We can't change 300, or I'm sorry, 750,000 tags. Uh, don't reprogram the tags on the PLC, but use a software-based solution to transform and standardize the data for storage by IT and the new OT systems. And, and I agree with that, right? And, and that, that to, to some extent, is, is what I was saying. Uh, pick the, pick the high-value tags. Everything you do going forward needs to be in that standardization. You, you can't change three-quarters of a million tags. It is just infeasible. Uh, and, and very painful as uh, as we talk about this. Uh, Vlad, do you, do you have any other thoughts on that? But before we uh, before we move on to to a cloud topic, yeah, I would say that my experience has been a lot closer to what uh, John is saying, right? So we would use the you know I mentioned the data aggregator or data collector mm-hmm. that was uh, primarily an Allen Bradley PLC, and then it's a it's a very tedious process, right? So he's yep. mentioning a a very large number of tags. I've typically dealt with a lot less than that, but in order to give them context, what would usually happen is I would have, let's say, a, a line that is running a certain process that would have maybe you know two to anywhere between five or ten PLCs, and so I would connect to each one, and then I would have to log into each PLC, uh, decipher what's going on there, bring that into the aggregator controller and at that level i would standardize the data right so it would be a unified namespace if you want to call it that but from that point forward that data upstream would be standardized right so if i had values for temperatures it would be in a certain format if i had you know bundles of let's say like pumps that would have a set number of tags it would be a certain udt and the way that data is then or passed to the upstream system, it would be in a very standardized manner. So I certainly uh, resonate with what John is saying, but I also realize it's a huge undertaking. Usually you need a very significant business case because it takes a lot of time and effort to figure that out. But as he mentions as well, I would never do that on the PLC side because I think the PLC Mm -hmm. is running a process and it becomes very difficult to modify the structure and also to get the downtime necessary to, you know, change the system. And you can certainly, you know, you can maybe get a few hours of downtime to install that pipeline. I know on on some of the older PLC models, it's not feasible while the system is running. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you want to restructure the tags, it, it just has so much overhead that is needed. And I think too much risk, to be honest with you, that uh, I wouldn't touch it unless it's going to be an upgrade of uh, of that system. So that's that's at least my take on that. 
Absolutely. And then just for perspective, because uh, I know that you've done a bunch of this with these data aggregators. Can you give everyone like a rough timeline on how long it would take you to physically go through and do this? Because I think time is a key component of this. And I know that these were very long processes for you. Sure. So I, I guess to paint a, a picture of the process, right? So it would typically be a very brief plant assessment that would be maybe a week at the facility, then a week offsite, sort of deciphering and taking a high level look at the architecture. Then it would be submitting proposals, adding, you know, the hardware on the facility side. So again, if they don't have an on-prem server that's going to process and store that data, that's going to be working with IT on purchasing that equipment. It's going to be purchasing that uh, data collector, making sure that it's networked onto the facility the way it needs to be. It uh, also involves, in many instances, adding instrumentation. So a lot of times, you don't want to just collect what's currently out there. You also want to get a few more sensors in, depending, again, on the age of the system. A lot of times, it involves some upgrades or at least minor changes like i've said at the very least you need to install uh, a pipeline in each controller if it's an older model like i said you need to request downtime from the facility you schedule that activity so all in all you know just to get the data to the collector right so we're talking not even processing anything just sort of siphoning it out to a central location i want to say at the very least two months for a smaller facility uh, but probably larger side, that activity could be six months. And then sending that to the server and making, again, some of that can happen in parallel. So mm -hmm. I think in a three-month time frame, you're seeing some higher level basic metrics. But maybe six months is when you're starting to get some value out of that information. You're actually, uh, you know, you've trained maybe the personnel a little bit or at least spoken to the uh, operations managers or operations mm -hmm. supervisors kind of explain to them what they can get. They start training people. You start deploying some terminals on the plant floor so that people can understand what's going on uh, with the system. But it, again, a very rough estimate, like I said, depending on the size of the organization, it's probably two to six months. And I feel like we've been talking about this for six months. So anyone interested to chat more, uh, Vlad and I would certainly be able to would be happy to have conversations about this. Uh, to, to summarize, I think normalizing your tag structure or normalizing naming, whether it be in the PLC or data collector PLC or in a software somewhere, all of those are important as we look at future state uh, for organizations for a variety of reasons, um, but all very time consuming and, uh, and not inexpensive when we look at that. But I'd like to... I'd like to, to make the jump to, to talking about cloud, right? Uh, so we had Joseph on, uh, Joseph DeVolio uh, on, and he was talking about, uh, yeah, he was talking a lot about cloud, right? Um, he was talking about cloud and what he's doing. That, that's a kind of a lot of next next level things to, to our conversations. Vlad, what were your thoughts about uh, what were your thoughts about cloud and the conversations that we had with Joseph? Uh, so I really like what they're doing at 4IR. So if you don't know, Joseph is the CTO of 4IR, and their initial, I want to say, like product offering, as far as he explained it to us, 
is that they have a bundled in cloud native system that they run that allows you to create a SCADA slash MES system. And so they've standardized on ignition. They've recently became a, uh, I, I don't want to say the, I don't want to say it's not a distributor. It is a partner, strategic partner, I believe is the word uh, for ignition. And so they provide that cloud solution uh, for them. But my thought is, I think that's where the industry is going. I think it allows a, a lower barrier to entry for smaller manufacturers. And I think it allows an easier proof of concept deployment. Again, me and Dave have talked about this last night. We've talked about this uh, this morning. And so it makes it easier for people to try out solutions before they commit to uh, to buying the entire license. So I'm all for that. I certainly see a lot of advantages in doing it that way versus on-prem, including, again, shortening time of deployment and um, making it more accessible to the OT side. What are your thoughts, Dave? And I think we also have a very good question from Kevin that maybe we want to tackle. We'll, we'll get to Kevin in just a moment. So I want to be sure that we called them correct. So uh, 4IR is a solutions partner um, solutions with inductive partner. automation. Yes. Uh, so at the same level of, of Cepasoft. So any anyone who knows or, or doesn't know um, the inductive automation, they've, they've changed a couple of things around. I think solutions partners are relatively new. But I guess on my side, uh, I'll, I'll make this comment about Joseph and then, then Kevin will get to your question in just a moment. But from my side, I like what Joseph is doing. Um, I, I like cloud-based solutions. I think cloud-based solutions will not replace everything that we are doing outside of on-prem. I think on-prem has and probably for maybe forever, if not close to forever, will have a very important series of solutions and um, and fill the gap uh, for manufacturing for the OT network for a variety of reasons. But I think cloud is very interesting. I think cloud allows us to leverage a whole bunch of different tools. Um, everyone who knows me knows that I'm very interested, very excited about cloud tools. How can we take, you know, outside technology and deliver it to the plant floor. And I think cloud is going to allow us to drive a bunch of that. We use a lot of software as a service, SaaS and other solutions within our daily life. Why can't we use it on the manufacturing plant floor? And I know that there'll be people who have reasons why we can't do that. Um, but on, on my side, I have seen people light up when we give them the smallest bit of outside technology on the plant floor and it really changes the, the mindset. It changes a lot of kind of the culture within a facility. Um, so overall, I'm a big fan of cloud. I like what 4IR is doing on the managed services, right? Because there are a lot of people who don't have the ability to go spin all of that up, right? And if you're only spinning a, a tech stack up once or once every six months or a year in the cloud, then Many times it makes more sense to, to pay someone to go have them do it so that you don't spend weeks or months in order to, to go through the process of trying to figure it out. And then you go spend a couple of weeks trying to, to remember how you spun it up the last time. So I'm a big fan of, of I am a big fan of managed services, especially if it is outside of your core competency. Uh, Vlad, do you, do you have any thoughts on that that you want to add before we jump into Kevin's question? No, I, I think let's have a discussion on the cloud and come back to this, but I do want to uh, maybe bring this question into the mix. I think it, 
resonates with what we've been talking a little bit earlier. So Kevin is asking, uh, how do you feel about physical IT OT network separation? We're considering going from IT switching on one stack and OT switching on another to a combined IT OT logically separated. What are your thoughts, Dave? Well, Kevin, thank you for this like super loaded question. Um, and, and I feel like th th this is potentially the most loaded question um, anyone uh, anyone can ask. So talking about like physical separation, if we're talking like separation via firewalls, I, I am a fan. Like we should have some sort of DMZ. We should have some sort of firewall. Maybe even we, we talk about data diodes um, in between them. But when I look at combined tech stacks, I think we look at that generally kind of as the way of the future. Uh, we have talked a little bit, maybe with Joseph, maybe with Kevin uh, about hyperscaling and how do we go leverage hyperscaling. And so for anyone who, who doesn't know, hyperscaling is basically, hey, we're going to do the architecture uh, via software components and then the hardware almost doesn't matter. So I could take a, a Cisco switch. I could take a Stratic switch. I could take a Siemens switch. I could drop any or all of those into the same place. And my system will work because my system is not designed based upon hardware requirements. It's designed based upon software and other requirements along those lines. So generally, and I'll say this, I feel like I have to make a caveat, right? I'm a consultant. I'm not your consultant. I don't know what your architecture specifically looks like. But generally, I am a fan of, I am a fan of looking and combining networks, right? Like, I feel like we can run them on the same hardware. We can run them on the same hardware safely, probably less expensively than we can if we have two completely separate networks and beyond that, I will also say the, I have seen it done successfully. I have seen it done successfully when it and OT have good relationships and are working together on these problems. If you have it OT issues, like we were talking about towards the beginning of the show, where the groups are butting heads all the time, no one wants to take responsibility and, and kind of throw it to all of the other groups this is probably a good use. Uh, this is probably a good way to cause lots of internal problems. Yeah, I, I really like that answer, Dave. I, I think, you know, if I want to add a couple of uh, like experiences or I guess like projects or conversations that I've been a part of, and I think that a lot of them stem from maybe a not up to date scheme of what the network topology looks like. Right. And so I think ultimately in my world, I think what makes sense is having, you know, your OT network, then you have your IT mm -hmm. network and you have a single tunnel that allows data to pass through. Right. And there is a lot of emphasis on that quote unquote tunnel that needs to be maintained in my mind, primarily by IT, but it also needs to be very how to say it's standardized on the OT side and what they're plugging into that tunnel and allowing mm -hmm. to go through, right? And I think like these conversations stem, like I said, from the fact that there's going to be multiple ways to communicate to IT, right? And so now you have this uh, architecture where you're not necessarily sure what data is flowing to the outside world. 
right? Because again, we've discussed this reason, reason, these reasons a number of times, right? But you're trying to do something quick. You're trying to connect. You're trying to establish that outside communication. Um, but ultimately, like I said, in my perfect world, IT and OT would own their respective networks. There would be a single tunnel. And if you want to add anything that sends data across the two networks, both departments need to be very well aware of what's going on, right? Um, I would also add that at least on the OT side, I've seen, again, and I keep saying this, a certain lack of knowledge when it comes to networking, right? And we've talked to Josh Varghese, who goes and troubleshoots a lot of the problems that arise because I think the learning curve is underestimated on the OT side. And so I can certainly, right, so I can put in a static switch. You see a couple of them behind me, but I wouldn't call myself the same level of, uh, of an expert than someone who did uh, CCNP, right, or some of those like higher level uh, certifications, but also works in that on a day-to-day basis and is able to deploy even the OT network in a reliable way. So I think all I'm trying to say is that you need someone with IT or network knowledge on the OT teams to be able to manage that infrastructure correctly. Otherwise, when you combine or you, you know, or you separate, I think there's still going to be issues on, uh, at least on the OT side from what I've seen. But again, you know, those comments are made without full knowledge of uh, your current architecture, Kevin. Absolutely. So Kevin, uh, Kevin has a follow up here. I'm going to read it. Uh, I've, I've got a couple of, and then uh, I'm, I'm going to read it um, and we can go from there. So, so Kevin says he's particularly scared about our IT users have caused some kind of packet storm and now OT is on the same switch. And so that's being messed up as well. And, and that being messed up as well generally means that we are going to have our OT network down and yes. that, that causes other big problems. And th- that is certainly something that needs to be mitigated against. I will say, Kevin, if you'd like to have an offline conversation, um, Vlad and I have many stories, uh, many of which we, we probably are not going to tell live on air uh, that we that we can share. Um, so so please feel free to uh, to reach out either through uh, th- through messages or Vlad and I will, will drop in an email and we can set up a time to chat if that would be helpful for, for you and your facility. We can kind of talk through what we've seen what we look at best practices and then either help you or put you in connection with, uh, with some other great folks who that who we've talked to and worked with in the past, who, who can help you. Uh, we will go ahead and, uh, and do that after, uh, after the show. But I, I think that th- this is amazing. I think we've hit a bunch of, of great topics. Vlad, do you want to argue about on-prem versus cloud, or do we want to talk about how do we talk to executives about ITOT convergence? I think we move on to executives, Dave. Do you want oh, to perfect. Open us up on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so I realized that no one else uh, watching this live can see Vlad's show notes. Vlad has a, a whole bunch of different topics, and th- then he's just kind of got a shruggy shoulder emoji uh, when, when we get to executives. No, that 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 is a joke. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, I am fairly sarcastic uh, when, when we talk about show notes and other things like that. But no, so uh, the the last conversation we had. Two Wednesdays ago was with Burned. Uh, Burned works for Siemens. And as I said on that show, man, so, so Burned was part of the group 
10 years ago now, and he spent five years doing that, that developed, he was the, the product or program manager for the S7 1500, spent a number of years doing that. The S7 1500 just celebrated its 10th anniversary. And I told him, you know, Bern, before you got to that point, I feel like you had a super amazing career. Then you helped deliver one of these next generation control systems that we've all now been using for 10 years. And uh, and now we're here and now he's working on Edge and, and IPC and all of these other things. And so I, I found the executive conversation really interesting, right? Um, I, I found the executive conversation really interesting. And to, to, my, to, to my point, it, it's kind of the ITOT convergence conversations that, that I'm having most of the time, because at the end of the day, executives typically care about business cases and what are the financial implications, financial ramifications. Most of the time, the executives that, that I talk to don't really want to know about how IT and OT are having fisticuffs out, uh, out next to the dumpster because OT... Vlad would like to, to go put, you know, some new software technology and uh, go leverage that on the platform. And IT, Dave, is being like, oh, no, Vlad, but we couldn't possibly let you do that. You need to fill out this piece of paper. It has to be in triplicate. And by the way, I don't accept paper anymore because I'm IT, right? So, like, executives typically don't want to hear that conversation. Or you want to fax. Oh, yeah, you got you got to fax me, Vlad. Yes. Uh, yeah, I actually do have a couple of fax numbers, not that you can have or that anyone can get. But we have had a couple of fax conversations uh, over this show uh, as well. So I would say executives generally care about business cases and what it's going to look like for them. Typically, when the conversations I have with executives is, hey, what is an industry 4.0? What is a digital transformation? What is ITOT convergence? And Beyond that, like when we talk about those big things, it's a how can we have these conversations and what do these things actually mean and how can I leverage it to the benefit of my organization? These are the conversations I'm having. This was kind of very similar to the conversation uh, we were having with Baron as uh, as well. W what are your thoughts? Uh, what, what are your thoughts, Vlad? Are you going to go take your MBA and become an executive? Are you going to go put on your, your suit and go uh, go to corporate office every day? That could be an option. But uh, uh, no, I, I think like for me, the perspective is like maybe on two sides, right? So on one side, they're looking to solve. Well, I, I want to say like, at the core, again, an organization is trying to put out more boxes out the door, right? I, I think like that's the fundamental requirement of any manufacturing facility. Now, they have either issues or opportunities, right? So what Kevin has described is an issue with the network that has, again, and I've seen this a number of times, um, you know, you have your computers, your phones, and in the entire IT system on the same network as OT. And then whenever something happens, the entire OT operation sort of stops. And I've seen this at a facility that had this outage two, three times a day. And so again, I would classify that as a loss of production, right? That ultimately hurts them in putting out more cases out the door. On the other side, we're looking at applications and we've talked a little bit about data, but I don't think we dove into the benefits. We're looking at getting data or extracting OT data that then is stored primarily or typically on the IT side. And that allows us to better our facility and thus either increase the speed of production or solve 
you know, some of the problems we have with machinery to ultimately bring new opportunities to the facility. And this could be, you know, adding different applications, but ultimately to me, those are kind of the two buckets of uh, what executives care about. So either bring me new opportunities or help me solve the problems that I currently have. So the discussions are always around that and right. And what's the value First of all, typically you want to prove with data again, what is the value of me solving this problem, right? And so just taking Kevin's example right now, and from what I've seen, you can quantify what an outage looks like, right? In terms of minutes or hours, depending on how long it is, that stops us from producing based on, again, proven IT problem. Mm -hmm. And what does that cost our facility on a, monthly or yearly basis. And then we could say, what would it take and what steps need to be taken in order to solve this? And again, there's many, uh, many ways to skin a cat, so to speak, Mm -hmm. but ultimately there could be several projects presented in that scenario to an executive who's trying to solve uh, that problem. But in my world, a lot of times it's, hey, we have a lot of data that we can collect. We're currently not collecting any of it, or maybe a minimal amount on our SCADA system that at best allows us to troubleshoot some of the problems, uh, you know, that I've mentioned earlier, we would like to take that to the next level, understand our OE metrics, be able to dig down into each piece of machinery. And again, I, I want to premise that with the executives are not necessarily interested with all those details, but they want to know that the people uh, have the right information in order to make decisions that would ultimately make their plant run better and thus put out more boxes, right? So, and they want to understand what's the ROI typically. They, again, they don't, they're not concerned with the technical metrics, what software you're going to use. That could be a question with the, you know, IT department or engineering manager, but the executives are going to be, well, what kind of problems can we solve with this? How long is it going to take? What is it going to cost us? And ultimately how much money is it going to put uh, back in our pocket? And one example, you know, one uh, interesting conversation I had maybe three to four years ago with an engineering manager that kind of shifted my thinking a little bit is he compared the organization to a bank, right? So he said, we are at a manufacturing facility. Every time we want to uh, execute a project, we're going to the bank to borrow money and we need to return that money with a certain percentage point, right? And so he, yep. the way he explained to me is, Vlad, stop thinking about the technological challenges and start thinking about the value it provides to the quote-unquote bank and how can we make them more money so that they can in turn go back and give us even more money to run the projects. And at that point, you know, they could be more interesting, right? But they're not concerned with the technical challenges. They're a lot more concerned with financials and how can we uh, bring the money back to them that has been invested in a project. Absolutely. I, I, excuse me, I agree with that. I think that more groups need to look at the organization. I I think the bank analogy is a pretty good organization. I think that the, the goal of manufacturing industrial organizations is boxes or cases or barrels, right? We have to output something in order to get paid so we can put money into the bank. And as much fun as, as on the technology side of going to learn and play with all of these new technologies are, if it doesn't return some return on investment, 
then at the end of the day, it doesn't particularly matter, right? Like, like businesses, executives, the whole value in the ITOT convergence is what sort of business case does it make in order to make the business more money so they can do things like continue to, to pay rent and buy raw materials and, and pay employees and, uh, and all of those things. So I think it's super important that we look at uh, I think it's super important that we look at having those conversations and by having those conversations, everyone can be successful as long as we focus on the end outcomes. Um, and, and again, I want to thank everyone for, for hanging out with us during this ITOT convergence recap. Um, next month uh, or the, the next theme we're going to talk about is data driven sustainability. And I think, I guess I'm excited about it because it's basically IIoT and the specific applications and use cases and business cases for IIoT applications. So I think that's going to be super exciting. And that will be the month of, well, that will be the rest of the month of March, uh, starting March 8th um, over the course of that. And we actually have a a live build application that we are going to go leverage uh, currently and tentatively planned for March 27th, but but stay tuned as as we get all of that figured out and uh, and all of those pieces of information uh, up and running. Uh, Vlad, any last comments before I close this out? No, I think it was a great conversation, Dave. Like one comment I will make is that I think it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time to figure out what the right solution for an organization is. I really think that the first step in, you know, giving any advice, and I think me and you can discuss previous applications, but in truly being able to help someone resolve some of these challenges, I think the right approach is always to start with a conversation, being able to go on site, then figure out, again, in my mind the architecture the current layout of the facility which typically takes quite a bit of time and effort and you need to speak with the right groups you need to speak with the right people from my experience it's not always um how to say it it's it's not always trivial to even understand the layout where the organization currently is and then to understand where the organization is capable and is looking to go in order to Uh, provide that uh, tangible feedback and then figure out a plan again that could be three months six months maybe several years to get there but ultimately solve some of the problems we've discussed on this episode so i think there's a lot of challenges a lot of effort to be put in but i certainly have seen the returns and i think that uh, if you're interested reach out to me or dave and we can have a conversation on that topic Absolutely. I agree with that. Thank you, Vlad. Thank you uh, for all of the amazing uh, comments on, on all of these platforms. Thank you, everyone, for, for hanging out with us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the ITOT Convergence kind of recap, uh, everything that we've learned and a couple of things that we hadn't talked about. We want to thank our sponsors, uh, Siemens, uh, for sponsoring this show and helping to get both Kyle as well as Burned uh, live on the air with us. It, it's always amazing to uh, to be able to kind of leverage uh, some of those much larger organizations that, than a Dave and a Vlad show. Uh, if you guys are still watching live, please hit that subscribe button. Please hit the follow button. Uh, please hit the, hit the thumbs up. It helps uh, on a bunch of the algorithms. Uh, Solus PLC close to 37,000 subscribers. We're going to continue to push Vlad up there and take all the credit for his hard work. And if you guys are listening on podcast form, thank you for joining us uh, for this special bonus 
episode. If you guys wouldn't mind rating us five stars on all the podcast platforms that you can, hitting the follow button on everywhere you can. So every Thursday-ish, uh, we will have a podcast in your earbuds, uh, which reminds me that it is today, Thursday, and you guys should have a, a podcast in your earbuds, which should ring true for anyone listening or watching this on a Thursday. Until next Wednesday the 8th, we will see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much.